So, retrospectors, what historical events are we ticking off on this week's run of Today in History? Well, Monday is the anniversary of the day Roger first publishes famous thesaurus. Then on Tuesday, we say happy birthday, Mr. Potato Head. On Wednesday, the extraordinary stories of the child soldiers who fought in the American Civil War. On Thursday, how King James changed the word of God. And on Friday, what did spam emails look like in 1978? We discuss this and more on Today in History with the retrospectors. Ten minutes every weekday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, man fans. Ollie Man here with The Modern Man. Yes, we are back for another run of 10 Tuesdays. How are you? Hope you had a good summer. Uh, mine was pretty eventful. I got married in Gibraltar, of all places, which is where Sean Connery got married twice. Uh, anyway, whilst I was out there honeymooning on the Costa del Sol, I took the opportunity, of course, what else do you do on honeymoon, to go and record an interview for this podcast. My travels took me to Marbella, where I met this week's guest. He is 75 years old. He's from Salford. But unlike other elderly expatriates, he's a matador. Yeah, you heard me right. Uh, you're going to enjoy the interview, I think. Another thing that uh, happened over the summer is we got nominated as Podcast of the Year at the Arias, which is the new name for the Sony Awards, which is the big Radio Academy bash, you know, where they they give prizes to Chris Evans and the Today Programme and uh, specialist music shows you've never heard of. Well, all of Team Modern Man decamped to Leeds for the ceremony. Uh, You can see my photos at facebook.com slash ollieman. Fully expecting to lose the gold award to my dad wrote a porno. Uh, actually, we lost the gold award to something worthy from the BBC, but we did win the silver award, second place podcast of the year, uh, which none of us were expecting. And it was really thrilling beating off all the big contenders like Bob Mortimer. Um, I don't know if you'll be able now to get rid of the image of me beating off Bob Mortimer, but there you are. It's in your head now. Uh, anyway, we had a really lovely time. Rick Astley performed. Uh, there were some suspiciously blue cocktails. And then the following morning, perhaps ill-advisedly, we recorded the Zeitgeist and Foxhole sections of this week's show in our hotel room. Um, We didn't get to dedicate our award to anyone, because you don't get to if you win silver. You don't get to make a speech. Uh, But I'm going to take the opportunity now to dedicate it to you, dear listener. uh, Thank you for getting behind our new show since we launched last year and for telling your friends about it and for supporting it by buying us beers and putting reviews on iTunes and by generally making us excited to make you another series. So here it is, season three. It is our pleasure. Thank you. In this episode, you're going to learn why bullfighting training camps don't have bulls, where to buy your vegan condoms and how your brain maybe making your penis smaller. It's good to be back. On this week's Modern Man. I don't believe that bullfighting can survive this century if it doesn't change and adapt. Meet L. Inglis, Britain's last bullfighter. Men's penises have the ability to retract into the body to keep them warm, to protect them, but also if they're frightened or stressed. And Alex Fox has a question of cocks. But first, it's the zeitgeist with the man who puts the end in trends. It's Ollie Pitt. Hello, Ollie. Hello, Ollie. How are you? I'm all right, but I know that you're aching at the moment. I've just been curled over. I had a kebab. We all had the same kebab. I know, I know, but I I had the chilli sauce with the kebab. He's rubbing his stomach in pain (laughs) as he talks. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not hungover, nothing like that. I feel absolutely fine. I feel compus mentis and all that, but my, my bowels are just internally beating me. Wow. Is, I feel bruised. 
Anyway, uh, Ollie's here every week to summarise the week's trends. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ollie, what is the big trend of the week? Bow ties. Right, okay. Is this fresh in your mind because we were at the Not Sony Awards anymore last night? Yes. I was wearing a bow tie. Yes. Because I am a trendsetter. And uh, this bow tie, uh, my mum made it. She'd be very proud that I'm talking about this. And it's lovely. And I can tie it, right? We're not talking about clip-on ties here. I just made that really clear. And I was walking around and I saw this chap. I mean, he was the smoothest, coolest looking guy ever seen in your life. And he was wearing a bow tie. I had to go up to him and go and talk to him. And I kind of thought, well, who is he? And he is Gregory Porter's drummer. And his name was Emmanuel. Emmanuel. I mean, come on. He's like the coolest guy in the world. And he's wearing a bow tie. And that is to solidify the fact that bow ties are the coolest thing. If you're not wearing a bow tie right now, if you don't know how to tie a bow tie, then you need to to go out and learn. I learn on YouTube. I'd say, actually, Piet, that I was the cooler one at the awards ceremony yesterday because I was wearing no tie at all. Yeah, but That's but, how cool I am. Yeah. I'm not on my way to work. Okay. I'm here for leisure. It's just like you've lost it. It's like you've lost a tie. It's like that, I don't like the open collar look. You look like Simon Cowell. I just, I don't know. I, don't, I, I feel like wearing a tie is for events where I've been told I have to wear something. And if I'm not told, then I'd prefer to have the open shirt. I prefer a bit of wind on my... On my chest hair. Look, if I'm going to an event where I'm going to get within touching distance of Rick Astley, mm. then I'm wearing a bow tie. And <laughs> you should too, out of just respect. Right. What else is hot this week, Ollie? Have you heard of Adam Curtis? Yes, I find his documentaries completely unwatchable. <laughs> I, right, well, you're going to love this. I think, I think it's like Emperor's New Clothes. Everyone watches it and says, oh, isn't it clever? I've no idea what's going on. It's just lots of archive clips set to music. Well, okay. Well, Adam, Adam Curtis has just released a, a new film called Hypernormalisation. Basically, it starts Reagan's America, and it also covers 70s Syria with Assad. And then Gaddafi comes in, and Gaddafi's like, he's the bad guy, then he's the good guy, then he's bad again. And then all of a sudden, we're in a world where Facebook is controlling your face and your mind, and you just watch out. And that's basically (laughs) what the film's about. It's about how we've all become immune to uh, these political powers that are controlling us because we're not sure what is real. What is real, Ollie? What is reality? You tell me. Is this real? Is this is what we're <laughs> doing now? Is this What is this? It's, it's sadly all too real. There's probably people listening thinking, I've seen that film and that was a very terrible description, but it is, it is a three-hour yeah. <laughs> epic. It's quite difficult to summarise. And the thing is, is it's telling you stuff that you already know. You're already, you already know that politicians lie. You already know that, that Facebook is, is throwing up things that it knows you want to see. The echo chamber, we all know about that. So stuff that you've, you've heard about, but you're being told it and offered it up on a plate and you're astonished by it. I think it's the presentation of an interpretation as fact that's what bothers me about those things. I think some people really like being absorbed in a rhetoric, don't they? They they really like just being taken on a journey. This is one man's view of the world. Mm. And it doesn't matter if you agree or disagree, you're just going to hear it and be absorbed in it. And, and it, almost like Michael Moore does a similar thing in a different way, right? This is a narrative and this is what I'm going to tell you. I could tell you now yeah. that we are currently in World War Three, and it started, it would be too cheesy to say it started on 9-11, right? So I could pick an event that happened in 1998 and that led to 9-11. And ever since then, we're in World War Three, but we haven't been feeling it in the West. But if you lived in Syria or Iraq, you'd have been feeling it. And it would be just like World War Three. And that's how we should view the world now. And everything's in the shadow of that. I could tell you that. But that's not a fact, is it? That's just me saying, here are some things that have happened. And this is what I think is a way historians might look at it in the future. 
It's not it's not like indisputable. And then Adam Curtis kind of wraps it up and basically makes it entertainment. And everyone forgets that it's not indisputable. It's just a guy ranting about stuff. Well, I think it's, well no, because I think, I think because the usual narrative is that these kinds of things are presented in a really simplistic way on the news, aren't they? So he's taking very complex happenings and events yeah. and stitching it together in, that, in a narrative. Yes. Which, but someone's got to do that. I, don't, I can't think of anybody else who's doing it. No, and I agree. It, and, it's, and he is talking. And it is really interesting, but it's just like, it's not actually the case that the world changed because of this bit of archive footage of Wogan in 1989. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> it's just an interpretation. Do you know the thing that struck me most about it, though? I, I can't imagine. Well, you know his voice? Yeah. Great voice, right? He's got a good voice. Yeah. You know. So have you ever, have you Googled him? What do you mean? Well, he's, he's not, he didn't look how you think he's going to Oh, look. really? Yeah. Yeah, he looks like an absolutely, a cross between... Michael Ball and Mr. Tumble. And now I'm not sure what reality is. <laughs> okay. And uh, finally, Ollie, what else have we got going on this week? Auto-tune. Auto-tune? That's not a new thing. Ah, no. By any stretch of the imagination. No, it's not a new thing. But Ollie, I am going to make a prediction. Right. I'm going to make a prediction that auto-tune... Is over? Please tell me it's over. Auto-tune is going to die, yeah. You're good, yeah. yeah. The reason I predicted it yeah. is because, uh, you know, the whole Kardashian story where she... Uh, got robbed I do Kanye West at the time was at a, in a gig in New York he uses auto-tune mm-hmm. and he got told halfway through the gig and he got told oh you know your other ass being robbed you better hop along so, <laughs> do one so he stopped his gig halfway through but he yeah. left the auto-tune and he went sorry you got to go and did then, that like, really happen I've not that, seen that, really that happened. happen is that on YouTube it's on YouTube that's and amazing it's, it's not quite as like tuneful as that I mean yeah, he's just yeah. talking through auto he's like sorry you got to go <laughs> <laughs> and uh Anyway, and I think it highlighted the ridiculousness of auto-tune for everybody. And yes. them thinking, we're actually paying money to listen to a man <laughs> And that's why I think it's going to die. But it gets better. Does it? I have created a quiz around auto-tune. Right. So having just predicted the death of a thing, you've now invented a format that relies upon it. Yeah. Okay. Question one. Yeah. What popular song was the first commercial use of the auto-tune vocal effect? Uh, is it Believe by Cher? It is. Yes. Yes, well done. Question two. In the spring of 2009, what artist released a track called DOA, Death of Autotune, in protest that too many people had jumped on the autotune bandwagon? Ooh. Oh, that's a good one. That's a good pop so, quiz, isn't it? Well, just because you said DOA, I'm going to say MIA. No. Jay-Z. Oh, OK. Yeah, yeah. Well. he got annoyed with everybody jumping on the bandwagon. Question three. What artist criticised Autotune for making artists all sound like robots and then later admitted to using Autotune for their more pop-orientated records? Lou Reed. No. <laughs> can you have a bit more enthusiasm? It's um, a quiz. I, I don't know. I Pretend don't know. you can win money. <laughs> I really don't know. I couldn't guess. Michael Bublé. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, that's quite disappointing, isn't it? I don't think anything can disappoint me about Michael Bublé. It's a dream shatterer. I'm not quite sure what is real anymore. Well, okay, you've got all Adam Curtis on Michael Bublé. I have. Uh, with that, I suppose we'd better end for the week. So if people have a trend for next week's show, Ollie, what can they do? At The Modern Man on Twitter would yeah. be the uh, best way to get in touch. You know, anything you want me to review, look at, or any other weird prediction that you may have, please do send them my way. Yep, yeah, please do. And don't just get in touch to tell me that Adam Curtis is good. I know lots of people think Adam Curtis is good. That's why I said that I think he isn't. Troll Ollie. <laughs> <laughs> Think bullfighting and numerous words come to mind. Blood sport, danger, 
cruelty is a big one. We'll touch on that. But probably you're not thinking British pensioner Salford. Uh, And yet, at the age of 75, Mancunian matador Frank Evans is still in the bullring, despite initially retiring 11 years ago following surgery to have a prosthetic knee fitted. I travelled to his hometown near Marbella to meet him, and though he's had a recent injury as well, which you'll hear about, uh, he is actually in phenomenal shape. Uh, Facially, I guess you might place him in his 70s, but he was wearing tight jeans and appeared to have a pretty athletic torso under that shirt, I'd say his body looks at least 20 years younger than he is. Perhaps not surprising for someone that spent a lifetime in sport, he began his bullfighting career aged 21, when, like many tourists, he discovered the controversial sport on a holiday to Spain. I played for sale. I played rugby for sale at the time, and uh, Freddie Griffiths, who was the standoff, my mate, we went to a bullfight in Ibiza sort of uh, two times a week, and um, Fred said, when we get back, I'm going to give you a book, because I can see you're interested, and it will explain to you all about bullfighting. But what he gave me, actually, was the autobiography of Vincent Charles, who was the first English bullfighter. And um, I thought, Christ, we do this as well. What was Vincent Charles's story? Because it will surprise some of our listeners to, to know that there are any British bullfighters at all. He was a swashbuckling lad from the South. I think his dad was a jeweller. He obviously wasn't skint. He may have been to public school for all I know. And he came over here and uh, he got into the bullfighting scene down there in Algeciras, La Línea, and he fought in all of those bull rings down there. It's a very racy book to read, actually. Exciting. and uh, Well, it inspired me to think of uh, coming over and having a bash. How realistic did you think that was? I mean, how old are you at this stage? I'd be about 20 then, I think. One of the defects in my personality is that I'm reckless. If I'd like to change anything, I'd like to change my recklessness. But on the other hand, you are the way you are. And I might not have done a lot of things that I've done if I'd not been, um, if I'd not been happy to jump in head first. And uh, I just packed up, actually, once I read that book. And I joined a bullfighting school as such in Valencia. I'd used to go to one that was in an old cinema. Uh, in the open air, <laughs> they have cinemas because it's so warm. And during the day, they clear all the chairs away. And uh, at night, they put the chairs back. People watched the cinema. We were there working out as bullfighters, and I got I got my start there really. And um, how did they receive you? Bearing, uh, do you speak <clears throat> Spanish at well, this stage? Yeah, well, I spoke I spoke Spanish. Yes, nothing like I do today. But um, yeah, I, I could defend myself in Spanish. And um, I do remember Gary Goss, who was a very sincere man. And uh, I mean, most people in this game want to rip you off. It's a game of spivs. There is the elite who are proper business people. And I'd got a letter from a guy called Eduardo Ford, who'd been a matador, introducing me to this school. And I, I remember giving Garrigos the letter. He carefully read the letter, saying, this lad is English, but he wants to be a bullfighter. Uh, maybe you can help him, and so on and so forth. And he folded, <laughs> he folded the letter back, put it back in the envelope, and handed it to me. And he said, do you have a family? And do you have a job? He said, because really what you're thinking of doing is impossible. He said, I've got Pepe Luis Diaz here, uh, Joselito del Puerto, Paco Pastor. He named bullfighters who I got to know who they were. He said, they are terrific. They've been at it since they've been children. He said, they can't really get on the ladder. So where do you think you're going to go coming from England? Can you make show me a Veronica or a Natural? Because I haven't got a clue of anything. And I said, I've never even picked a cable. What is a Veronica? 
Well, it's the basic pass in bullfighting, actually, with the cape, two-handed pass. And um, Had you been practising anything? No, no well, I just turned up at his shop there and said, I want to do it. And um, he said, listen, the best you can do is uh, get back on the plane tomorrow and go home and earn a living. So I turned up then at his school the following day, and after a week he said, listen, I don't want to give you any false hope, he said, but you have got the ability to do this as a beginner. Which is what? What's he looking for? Cause he... I think I probably had balance and timing and coordination. To... You would expect that because I'd been a sprinter. I was a hurdler, actually. I held the record in Salford for the quickest 80 metres hurdler at the time. And uh, I played standoff at rugby. So you would expect somebody who'd played games to have some balance and timing, be able to do bits of things. And um, anyway, he thought that there was a bit of promise there. And he said, you can, let's carry on. A few months later, I'm training in Montjuic on the mountain there with all the bullfighters, and a guy called Old Greco comes along. He's an ex-matador. And he said, is there an El Inglés here? So they all turn around and point at me. He said, Carbonero's got a contract for you to fight a bull in France. I said, for me? He said, yeah, you're El Inglés, usted? He said, yeah, I'm El Inglés, yeah. And we sign a contract to make my debut in a town in Montpellier. Perols is the name of the, uh, the bull ring. We've got a month or so before the fight's coming up. And uh, I get another call now when Caruana says, let's meet in the Hotel Oriente because the empresario, the French empresario, Pierre Pouli, he wants to meet the matadors who were on his bill on that day. So I got my suit on and my tie. thought I'm a bullfighter now. And I sat in the lobby with the other kids and he came ambling down the stairs. He had a bombina, he had a, what a, a beret on. Typically southern France, sort of like a Basque. And uh, he shook hands with him and looked around. And he said, uh, oh, hello to everybody. He said, uh, where's El Inglis? And they pointed at me and said, that's him there. He looked at me and said, um, have you been to France before and had a fight? I said, no, I've never had a fight before. So we've got the wrong one here. When you said you'd had no training, like you said you'd spent a week doing something. Yeah, no, no training with cattle. Yeah. So the very first time that you faced a bull was in the ring yeah. at the fight. Yeah. Why is that? It seems to me that surely you would train with cattle. Why don't yeah. you? Why don't couldn't get any? <laughs> Nobody would invite me. At, but at a bullfighting training camp, they don't have any cattle. Well, people will hold horns and simulate the bull for you. And there are what they call carretones, which have horns on them, like a, uh, horns on wheels, on a bike wheel. But there are no, no bulls. And you can, by the way, you can only fight a cow or a bull once. Once you've fought it, that's it. You bring it out tomorrow and it'll, get, it'll go for your body every time. So, your first fight in Montpellier. Yeah. <laughs> how are you feeling? Well, I, I can't think back without I felt nervous or not. You, you would feel excited. Well, you'd feel excited before you go on a rugby field or in a boxing ring. Yeah, but you've so, got to think with this, if you've never faced a bull before, yeah, you've got I, to be thinking, yeah. shit, I've bitten off more than I can chew here. Surely. No, I never thought that, no. I just thought... And there was a good lad on the bill there called Diego Francisco, his name was. I've never met him since. And he knew it was a debut, and he, was a, he knew I was foreign and so on. And he was very friendly and kindly to me. He was very um, helpful morally. He gave me a lot of confidence. He said, don't worry, it's only, it's only a piece of shit, but he said, what's going to do to you? I don't want to kill you. So uh, the bull did its best to kill me. I was got thrown all over the place. But in a funny way, when you're kicking off, if the, the public see you trying and you're struggling, they get on your side. 
And I would also say that the whole thing passed in a blur. You know, all of a sudden it was over. We were back in the dressing room, surrounded by young ladies. Another little thing I found then, the girls like bullfighters. The whole thing's kind of charged with sex and testosterone, isn't it? Yeah. I, w- I would say that uh, there's a bit of a myth going on around our actions with girls. I mean, th- th- there are groupies, and it's a bit daft, all that, quite honestly. But really, to be a bullfighter and to have any chance of doing well ever, you have to get up every morning very early and go and run and work out with the cloth and the muleta and the sword. And you have to drive miles to these remote ranches in Andalusia, in Salamanca, in Madrid. You have to get out of the place. And you have to dedicate yourself. You have to eat well and you have to keep your drinking down. Don't smoke. And girls really don't fit into all of that. I had a girlfriend when I first came out here. I eventually married actually, I met her again later, but I cut my relationship with Margaret just because I wanted to be absolutely dedicated to what I was doing. Um, but it's very nice now and again to have, have a dalliance with a young lady and it's always available to you who want to look for it. And what about the crowds generally? I mean, <clears throat> slowly over time, I guess, the fact that you were El Inglés and that this is an area in southern Spain where there's a lot of British tourists, I, I guess yeah. you built up a crowd quicker perhaps well, than others. they don't think an Englishman's going to be able to do this, which they feel is very Spanish. It's almost got gypsy overtones to it. And they don't think that you can have it in your blood. Yes, bollocks, really, you do have it in your blood. Everybody can, I mean, art isn't exclusive to anybody or in nationality, but we do have, I would think maybe I might be accused even to this day of not being as flamboyant as them. And, and that might be an English trait, they were a bit more phlegmatic than the Spanish are. They are, they say what they think and then they use their hands and uh, they're much more demonstrative than we are. But you've got to put on a show. Just you have to do, yeah, I'm just saying that comparatively. But when I appear in a bull ring and uh, if nobody knows who I am and I'm in a town where I've not been before, I think most of the people who say, and I usually open the show now because I'm, I've been around that long, the eldest matador goes on first, top of the bill. And uh, I think they're wondering what the bloody hell is this fella going to be doing, especially now I'm a bit older looking as well. What goes through your head now when you're fighting a bull? The thing is that all bulls are very slightly different. They're very, you very rarely get one that's the same as the last one. And to be very good at this kind of skill, the answer is to be doing it all day, every day. And the more you do of it, as long as a bull respects you and doesn't hurt you too badly. And that's how, I mean, I saw two guys yesterday uh, in Seville. Absolutely sensational, consummate professionals, masters of the trade. And they know when to stand still with the bull sort of half an inch off the neck and when to move. When you, you say the bull needs to respect you, what do you mean by that? Because the bull they is trying to you. kill you. Yeah they, yeah. yeah, they don't kill you. But the bull, it's an expression, really, in bullfighting, if the bull respects you, because the bull at any given time can, um, can, can hurt you. I, I fought two bulls on the 30th of July, and um, I got caught by the first one. And you end up on the floor, and on the floor is where you can... I mean, a month before me, a young lad called Victor up in, uh, in Madrid, he was killed by a very similar thing, just tipped onto the floor... And before they could get to him, the bull had just gone whack and traversed his body right through his heart and killed him on the spot. So it's an expression that you you hope you get respect from the bull that he doesn't do that to you. How close have you come to that? Well, last month it was on the floor there in front of this one. 
Interestingly, the second ball got hold of me, far less spectacular. He didn't throw me. The first ball threw me in the air and uh, had a go on the floor. The team got there very quickly, of course, and got him away. And I just got knocked about and had lots of bumps and bruises from that encounter. The second ball caught me when I was trying to move away. I'd been disarmed and he tried to... I put my hand out almost as a, as a like a handoff in rugby. And I wasn't looking, I don't know exactly what happened, but I thought he broke my arm. And it's not even right yet, and they're talking about I may have to operate on my rotator cuff. And he's done a lot of damage to my shoulder, and nobody even noticed that the bullet had done me any damage there. But these things happen. Even as a bullfighter, even as a matador, you admit there are ways that it could be less cruel. I don't believe that bullfighting can survive this century if it doesn't change and adapt to the 21st Siegler. It's been like it is for the last 250 years, with very little change. There have been changes made, but there have been nothing to do with cruelty. And what you have, what I've noticed, is you have the animal rights on one side, and they're extremists. They only talk about abolition, totally. And it's not right to ban all of it. It's not all wrong. But you also have on the other side what you might call the Taurinos, they're the dyed-in-the-wool people who run and are involved in bullfighting and live by bullfighting, and they don't want to change anything. And somewhere between the one and the other is where it could be rearranged, restructured, so that it could take place with people's approval. What are the practical steps that well, should be taken? Well, you see, if it, I don't know how far you would have to go for people to say, this is OK, but in my opinion, if you can arrange for the bullfight to be taking place when only the man can get injured where the bull will not shed any blood during the bullfight then nobody can point a finger at you then I know a guy by the way who uh, when he's testing the animals on his ranch he doesn't use a proper pick he's got a rounded pick on the end which holds the bull off from the horse but doesn't puncture the hide and there is no blood so it can't be done don't put banderillas in him. So that, that's it, the image that, even if you've never seen a bullfight, you've seen that's what they all think, yeah. swords coming out. The Absolutely, the yeah, and, uh, and the sword, again, and what I'm, one of the other things I've got to say while I'm saying all of this, if we take out all the violence and don't even kill it, get something and simulate it, but don't actually put a sword in, you'll have to take him out and kill him, because that's what happens anyway. All bovines go to a slaughterhouse. And a lot of them are killed by Jewish people and by Muslim people, and they do it by cutting the throat. Far worse than what we do, but it's done behind closed doors, and it's done because of religion, and for religion you can do what the bloody hell you like. But it's ritual slaughter for <clears throat> meat, and people say, well, that's a product that's going to get consumed anyway. The bull that you're fighting for entertainment isn't going to die at that point anyway. You don't eat it. No, it's still going to get eaten, though. It's still going to be eaten. I reckon the big problem is people seeing it. I reckon that when a matador is incompetent with the sword, it's dreadful. It comes a massacre then. I might say, well, let's give him one chance with the sword. Or none. Just simulate the sword. The purists would shudder at the things I'm saying to you now. But I've got a feeling that if we don't change those activities during the bullfight, we will lose all of it. The thing is, when you say if you take all the violence out of it, then, you know, you'd make it more acceptable. You know that a lot of the reason that people are there is in some sense because of the violence, in the no. same way as in a no, boxing no, no, match, No, no, right? no, 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 I don't agree with that, no. Definitely not. The only thing they go to watch is for me to make a pass. They want me to get the bull on the end of a cloth. 
You've got to convince the bull that the cloth is the target and not your body. This is why it has emotion, because there's always the danger a bull changes his mind and leave you off your feet and not go for the cloth. And what the aficionado likes to see is when the man goes in with the sword, that he kills the bull with one sword thrust and the bull hits the deck very quickly. In Seville, for example, yesterday, Manzanares, who was second on the bill, he was going to get two trophies, but you have to kill with the first sword thrust, and he didn't. He had to do it with his second, so he lost one of the trophies. That's how important it is. All of that work that you've done with the cape on the letter, the whole ten minutes you're working with the bull is not worth anything if you don't kill him quickly. So for me to say, take the kill out, it's almost like I'm going to take this young lady to bed because she's beautiful and we're going to have a fantastic ten minutes of foreplay. We're going to do everything you can do in bed romantically with a young lady. But at the end of the day, I'm not going to fuck her. I'm not going to put the sword in. Well, why did you do all that then? You why did you make all those passes? Why did you kiss the girl and do all the things that you do in bed if you're not going to make love to her at the end? I see the analogy. <laughs> Some people would say what you're doing with the bull is more like rape than consensual sex, though. The bull hasn't said, I want to go to bed with you. The bull's just standing there. OK, the bull doesn't have to charge. I don't, I, I don't charge the bull, by the way. I don't make any aggression to the bull. The bull makes all the aggression. And if he wants to, and there are bulls, by the way, they're called manso, tame, come in the ring, they run away on the sides of the capes, and they keep running away and they won't fight. That's what they call the bad bull. What happens to that bull? He gets out there and gets killed. Yep. <laughs> they all get killed. I mean, yeah. The, the odd bull gets sent back to the ranch by. There had been two bulls. The bulls that I killed on the 31st of July came from a ranch where they've had two bulls with the lives pardon this year. They've been so good that they've not killed the bull. You don't live in Spain all the time, do you? You live in Manchester nope. yeah, a bit still. Yep. Yeah, yeah. What are your two lives like? I mean, a lot of expats who live over here have a very different life in the sun to what they have at home, but I imagine for you it's very marked. I train every day and I go to a gym and people see me working with the cape and the muleta, but they all know it. it's him, the bullfighter now. Nobody just knows who I am and what I am and it's, it's, it's no big deal. I mean, the first time you turn up to a gym with a cape, people must have asked some questions. Yeah, but I've been there for... I've been in this game now since 1964, so... They know there's a bullfighter. A lot of people know who I am and what I am, and they don't really take any notice of me. <laughs> I suppose I should ask you, since this is going to be a kind of lasting record and something that's online for a while, if what happened a few weeks ago happened and you were knocked out and you didn't come to, hmm. what would be the thing you would want people to remember you for or to think about that? Really, um, as far as bullfighting is concerned, I just want them to think that was an honest matador. And... Uh, when you're dead, it's not just bullfighting. I'd be, I'd be dead from everything that I am in, in life. And I'd just like to remember as a good family man, really. And would it have been worth you taking on that final bull? Yeah, because I've been very, very lucky. It's a privilege now to be in my 75th year and still performing and still be fit and healthy and well. And um, really, if I drop dead now after I've finished chatting to you, uh, Ollie. Um, I can't say I've not had a good innings, really. I suppose what I'm getting at is, is, is it a bit like Tommy Cooper for comedians? Like, is there a part of you that actually would rather no, that happen? No, not really. Not, no, I, I don't want to die. <laughs> I want to carry on just yet. And there's got to come a stage when they won't put me on anymore. They will, they'll stop ringing me. And uh, what I will do, I'll never retire again, but I probably, I will, I'd like to just fade away one day. And they just said, oh, by the way, what's happened to him, sort of thing. 
and they're not notices that I've actually gone. There was an English guy once, and he was a bullfighter. Yeah. Do you think there'll be another one? It's most unlikely. Each episode of The Modern Man reaches its climax with Alex Fox, and here we are, recording the foxhole for the very first time ever, in bed. Yes, in bed in Leeds as well. Which is the sexiest place in the world. We're actually, when I say we're in bed, and we are, but don't imagine Alex and I, even Morecambe and Wise style, in single beds next to each other. We're in single beds facing each other with our legs hanging down in the middle. Thanks for making that as unsexy as possible. It's like the least sexy way to interview someone in bed, isn't it? You also have yellow hair at the moment. I do. Bright neon hair. I look like a high-vis jacket made real. I'm getting echoes of uh, Paula Yates on The Big Breakfast, actually, with a bed interview. Oh, thanks. Yeah, maybe we should get Zig and Zag along. (laughs) (laughs) Zig and Zag are what I call my tits. Well, we've got a new sponsor, haven't we, Alex, for The Foxhole? We do, and I am chuffed as a little steam train because they're brilliant. Oh, great. It's a site called mycondom.com. I can guess what they do. Go ahead. They sell condoms. They do, but they sell so many different condoms. And uh, for a start, they buy them in bulk so they can sell them off at really, really cheap prices. These are great, brilliant, perfect condoms, but sold to the public for tiny, weeny little prices. And they offer a really huge range of some condoms that are really quite difficult to get hold of elsewhere in the UK. you, You don't mean well lubricated, you mean difficult to locate. Yeah, difficult to get your hands on so that you can get them on your todger. So is that like weird flavours and stuff? They do do some weird flavours, like they do a marshmallow-flavoured condom that's nice. really lovely, and a fizzy cola one, and a bubblegum-flavoured one. But beyond that, they do some really unusual variants, like uh, there's, a, there's a brand called Glide that do vegan condoms. And not many people know that most condoms are actually not vegan. I did not know that. Yeah, they use a milk protein called casein to uh, make the, the latex sort of more smooth and and even toned um, but that means that most most condoms are not suitable for vegans and we've got a discount code yes for you. a massive 15 percent off your whole order that's good yeah with the code foxhole amazing yes i have, my, I have my own safe sex code now I i'm so pleased about this th- the sexiest thing that's ever happened in podcasting tie-ups is that promotional code 15% off for Modern Man listeners when you type in Foxhole at the checkout. Okay, well, thank you to them for sponsoring this new series yes, of The thank Foxhole. thank you so much, mycondom.com. And let's get on with your questions. This comes from Peter from Rhode Island, USA. And he says, I'm a man in my late 40s and something weird is happening with my penis. It's been going on for about six years now. Throughout the day, my glands... Does he mean gland? No, glands is the end of the penis. Okay. The head of the penis. Recedes into the shaft of my penis. It's like it's hiding, or maybe it misses the foreskin that got sliced off 48 years ago. I refer to the situation as turtling. It doesn't hurt, but it is irritating. I frequently have to adjust my wiener and pop my head out again. I've always been a grower and not a shower, but this is getting ridiculous. This situation hasn't affected my ability to get an erection... I don't know if body weight is a factor. I'm currently overweight, but this situation started happening a few years ago when I was very trim and fit. Anyway, it's not like my dick is getting fatter. Any ideas as to what is happening? 
Well, I've got a few ideas as to what might be going on in this gentleman's trouser region. But as ever, because we are broadcasting over the the podcast waves and I can't see his wang tang doodle hammer directly, I would advise please go and get an MOT at your GP. Really? Yeah, the only person who can really truly say what's going on here is a doctor. Okay. And there may be a number of things happening. It doesn't sound to me all that concerning though. This is very unlikely to be a serious problem, especially as Peter says that it's not causing him any pain, he's got no problems with getting an erection, but there's a small potential that it could be connected to a health problem. So it's always best to go and check with a professional. Okay, so what do you think it is? Well, the sad news is that whilst Peter's Todger is not getting fatter, it may naturally be getting smaller because your penis does shrink as you get older. Yes, it does become slightly smaller. So it might just be part of ageing. In the same way that you get grey pubes and your pubes fall out a bit, uh, your your penis does become a little little bit more micro as as the years go by. Inevitably have little use for it. (laughs) No, you can still have lots of use for it. Yeah, but your body's kind of telling you, isn't it? I mean, that's interesting, isn't it? Why is it getting smaller? It just naturally, your body shrinks slightly over time. Like my well, grandma. Well, think, think, things grow and, and things shrink. I actually learned recently that the clitoris becomes seven times bigger over a woman's lifetime, which is Goodness. quite mind-boggling. Yeah, so some bits get larger, some bits get smaller. Uh, we also have to factor in... Is that in- potentially why when people say sex gets better as they get older, it is actually partly from the woman's point of view that it does actually become easier? Absolutely true that different types of orgasm become easier or there are different parts of a woman's body that become more accessible as yeah. she ages in particular in but then your you've got 30s, a smaller penis with which to access them yeah, you've still got hands i really <laughs> um in, in a woman's 30s as her estrogen levels drop naturally yeah. uh this the the lining of the vagina becomes slightly thinner and that actually makes the g-spot more accessible so g-spot orgasms are easier to try and achieve when you're older uh-huh. yeah there are lots and lots of ways that your body can still be extremely pleasurable as you age. Okay, so... Let's get back to Peter. So it could be natural shrinkage. Uh-huh. It could also be just the effects of gravity. As you, as you age, everything hangs down a bit further, mm. including the skin of your penis. And also, he mentions that he's put on a little bit of weight lately. It's really, really common for the, the pad of fat over the pubic region to kind of hang down a bit. If he notices that his penis recedes more... Uh, when he's sat down, then that may well be connected to weight. He does tell us, though, that this situation started happening when he was still quite trim and fit. Um, It could be connected to a muscular or nerve issue actually behind the penile region. If he's damaged a muscle or if if a muscle has just become naturally less toned, then the the muscle that sort of pulls the penis back, if you will, and keeps all that skin taut, if that's more relaxed or a bit saggy, then everything's going to fall forward. I I hesitate to use the phrase locker room in any context these days, Um, but possibly this is more about that confidence issue being around other people than it is necessarily even with himself or with a sexual partner. Well, weirdly, confidence may actually be what's causing this as well. Oh. There is, there's a chance that this could be linked to something psychological. 
men's penises have the ability to retract into the body uh, to keep them warm, to protect them, but also if they're frightened or stressed. It's, it's a protection, a natural evolutionary protection mechanism. And there are studies that show that some guys, if they're really, really stressed, if they're very anxious, they will experience this receding of their penis into their body. So if he's if he's under a lot of pressure, yeah. then that could be inadvertently cause, causing his... Uh, is Todger to go hide away or to turtle, as he puts it? You've just you've just caused like dozens of people to have very difficult conversations with their therapist this week. I think now. Well, hopefully constructive conversations. <laughs> there is one other thing that it could be, although I'd be surprised if he was. He if he mentions that he was circumcised forty eight years ago. It is possible that if a circumcision is slightly aggressive mm-hmm. uh, and takes a little bit too much skin from the shaft of the penis, mm-hmm. then over time the scar tissue that forms can harden and tighten and that can cause the penis to recede back. It pulls the penis back into the body or pulls it out of shape a little bit. That would require a minor operation either to repair the skin there or uh, doctors, surgeons can also... There's a, there's a little tendon that holds the penis sort of in place. They can sever that tendon so that everything falls like hangs down a bit a bit more alex it's been a pleasure as ever uh, if people want to send in a question for next week what do they do head over to modern man that's m-a-n-n dot co dot uk click on feedback and then you can ask me whatever you wish to do with your turtle penis your terrapin penis or your terrifying penis thanks again to mycondom.com for sponsoring the foxhole remember that's the word foxhole you use on their website to get 15 percent off And with that, the end is very nearly upon us. Thank you so much to those of you who bought us beer over the summer break and supported the show. Uh, And we have a new Manbassador. It is Podcast Lover 13 from Poland, who has left us the following review on iTunes. She says, I used to read the Polish version of FHM called CKM, which was great. In Ollie's podcast, we get a bit of everything. What else could you possibly ask for? I'm really hoping for season three. Don't disappoint your growing fan base, Ollie. Uh, well, here we are, Podcast Lover 13, and you're in it. Uh, and I now pronounce you the Manbassador for Poland. To become a Manbassador for your home country, just visit iTunes.com slash man, uh, that's M-A-N-N, and leave us a review. Our theme is by Django Django, off their self-titled debut album. And each week, in the grand tradition of Music Hall, we end with a song. This week, we're recommending this fruity little number by Glass Animals. It's called Season 2, Episode 3, and it's out now on Wolf Tone. I've been Ollie Mann, the producer is Matt Hill, and we'll see you next Tuesday. And everything I try to leave behind is still
Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip <laughs> off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.